This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we hear from a luminary in the world of apraxia of speech, SLP Edie Strand. Helping those with this motor speech disorder is at the center of her decades-long career. Edie says that when it comes to differential diagnosis, the work of SLPs can be challenging. And I always say to them, you know, what we do is hard, but we do have tools. Here Edie explained the difference between treating apraxia of speech and other disorders and how she discusses the motor speech disorder with families. Plus, with a storied career, Edie shares memories of patients and experiences that informed her professional life, including the valuable lessons she took from those interactions. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. This continuing education opportunity begins March 22nd. Learn more at on.asha.org pedfeeding23. Joining me is SLP Edie Strand, now retired. Edie was previously with the University of Washington, and she was with the Mayo Clinic for over 15 years. Edie will be speaking at the sold-out 2023 ASHA Healthcare Summit, Grand Rounds in Motor Speech Disorders. She joins the podcast for a conversation on motor speech disorders, focusing on apraxia of speech. To start a conversation and get everyone on the same page, I asked Edie if she could briefly explain what apraxia of speech is and how it might relate or differ from other motor speech disorders. The nature of the impairment in apraxia of speech, the current consensus is that it is due to an inefficiency in the planning and programming of movement for volitional speech production. And it occurs both in an acquired form as well as developmental. For example, in the acquired form, it may occur after people have a stroke or head injury. And in the developmental form, it can also be acquired if there's a stroke in utero or early in childhood, or it can be the case that we just don't know what's caused this inefficiency. But we do have certain characteristics that we use to help identify and use this label. I think that's one of the important things to point out is that there's this misunderstanding, both in the acquired form in adults, but more often in the childhood apraxia of speech, that this is a medical diagnosis. And in both cases, it's not the medical diagnosis. It's a label for a type of speech disorder. In particular, it's a type of motor speech disorder. In the acquired form, the medical problem is the stroke or the damage to the brain. In the developmental form, we don't really identify a particular medical reason for it, and there is no biomarker for either adult acquired apraxia or for childhood apraxia. And that is why we use the identification of very particular speech characteristics to determine whether that label is appropriate, either for the adult or the child. Can you tell me that word apraxia, where does that come from? I'm not sure where it you know, originally came from, but the word praxis itself relates to planning and programming of volitional movement. And that's why it's used in that 
case, I think it was used more for limb apraxia problems that can occur after stroke early on. And Fred Darley, who was at the Mayo Clinic uh, many years ago, identified uh, aspects of speech production that appeared to be due more to praxis and certainly differentiated from the weakness we see in people who have dysarthria. And by making these observations over a great period of time, he and Arnie Aronson and others, certainly over time, have been able to study this phenomenon in adults in order to determine what really are the characteristics that we would see in order to use this label. I think the important differentiation came about first in that people that have strokes often have aphasia, which is a language problem. You can't think of the word or you use the wrong phonemes. Uh, But in a proxy of speech, the nature of the impairment is very different. They may be able to think of the word, but they can't program the movement appropriately for the correct production of the word. And Darley and Aronson, and then, of course, Joe Duffy, Mick McNeil, uh, Terry Wirtz, Jay Rosenbeck, these were all real leaders in our profession in terms of studying the uh, adult apraxy of speech. Childhood apraxy of speech wasn't studied until quite a few years later, although Yost and Darley uh, from the Mayo Clinic published a really important paper in the late 70s that was the first discriminative analysis that identified a group of children from a large heterogeneous group of children with speech disorders who they were able to identify as having this core of characteristics that made them different from the other kids. And these characteristics were similar to the kinds of things they would see in an adult apraxia. And That really led over the years to quite a bit of research in childhood apraxia of speech as well. You made a presentation for the Once Upon a Time Foundation, which is a private foundation. They do work with childhood apraxia of speech. And you mentioned that in that presentation, you say apraxia is focused on movement, not sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, the sound is always important. That's the end product. But you have to think about the fact that There are phonemes, which are conceptual, really, and they are discrete. So we have a P P that makes the sound P. But when we talk, we don't use discrete units. We speak at the minimum in syllables. And the movement that occurs for, say, the phonemes P-O-T are not discrete. We don't go P-A. We go pot. And if you take the sound out and just say that to yourself with just the movement, that is what we focus on in a proxy of speech, that accurate movement gesture throughout the syllable. That is what the biggest difference is in treating apraxia from more linguistically based disorders, such as a phonologic impairment. If we don't focus on improving the accuracy of the movement, we're not really addressing the nature of the impairment. I'm hearing you say that the movements can influence the sound, but also aphasia can be present. I'm thinking this can be difficult at times to to feel certain that, that the diagnosis is correct whenever looking at a of speech. Is that accurate? 
Absolutely. I'm smiling here because that's very accurate. You know, when I'm giving talks or workshops, the audiences are typically speech pathologists. So they're my colleagues. They're, we're all in the same uh, situation of having to make these challenging differential diagnoses. And I always say to them, you know, what we do is hard, but we do have tools. We have a lot of people doing research in this area, and we have ways to differentiate, at least to some degree, how much of the speech disorder is due to linguistic problems, such as aphasia or problems in developing phonology and motor speech. That isn't perfect, but it's good. And when you practice really listening to either the adult or the child, your ear becomes much better at picking out these characteristics. There are also some tools that are available, some tests that are available that give more information to the clinician to help with this differential diagnosis. I just want to interrupt briefly to mention that you can find links to tools, articles, and resources that might help you detect and treat apraxia of speech on the blog post for this episode. That's at on.ash.org slash podcast. While you're there, you'll see a link to a 2017 article Edie wrote for the Ash Leader magazine. It's called Appraising Apraxia. It includes information on charts featuring characteristics of the motor speech disorder. In that article, Edie writes, quote, SLPs have a challenging job. To come to a differential diagnosis, we need to take into account cognitive development and disorders, language and phonologic development and disorders, and motor speech development and disorders. We need to understand how cognition, language, including phonology and motor speech skills, interact in young children who are still developing speech and language. End quote. In our conversation, I read that quote to Edie, commenting that it's a lot to keep in mind at one time. Yeah, there is a lot to keep in mind. You know, in our curricula in the university, we typically have two years to cover an enormous scope of practice. And it's getting just even harder as we now have to include year by year, it seems like we're including more information on more kinds of disorders. At the University of Washington, for example, we've recently, they have recently had to reduce the number of semester hours in most of their courses. For example, motor speech disorders used to be a four credit course, that is four hours a week, and now it is only three. Neural bases of speech and language has gone from four to three. And so there's just much more to cover than there was certainly when I was in school. And I think that's why speech pathologists, as a rule, uh, have a lot of knowledge when they come out of school, but they haven't gotten to get as deep into any of those uh, disorders as they might want to. And so that causes a little bit of insecurity. So I often encourage my colleagues to talk to each other, ask questions, go to someone who maybe has more experience, because this is hard. And then also work to really hone their own ears in terms of understanding how to identify and really being able to discriminate uh, characteristics associated with both adult and childhood apraxia so that they do feel more confident. Edie says she's working with others to create tutorials to share with universities and post online. These will allow people to hear characteristics of apraxia of speech. She says the process will take a while, but hopes to have those tutorials in the near future. 
We're taking a quick break. When we come back, Edie talks about discussing apraxia of speech with families. She shares memories from her career. Sport for Asha Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. From March 22nd to April 3rd, this continuing education opportunity will help you rethink your current practice patterns and expand your knowledge to achieve the best outcomes for your patients. You can earn up to 2.55 ASHA CEUs. Learn more at on.asha.org pedfeeding23. I have to imagine that without a clear indication of, I'm thinking of childhood apraxia of speech in particular, without a clear indication of when that began or uh, how it was acquired in an acquired case, or, or maybe it's not clear if it was acquired or not, I can imagine it would be difficult for parents to understand or even accept what is happening sometimes. And so I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about communicating these motor speech disorders to parents and families? Yeah, I've spent a lot of hours uh, doing just that. Parents often come to the clinician with the question, why isn't my child talking? And the second question would be, will my child talk by kindergarten? Those are the most frequent questions that I would get. And after we do the assessment, we're better able to answer what the label for their speech disorder is. We can't always tell them what's caused this inefficiency. I like the word inefficiency better than impairment because with therapy, even very, very severe CAS, the kids with very severe CAS do quite well and end up being verbal communicators. That's an important thing to know. At the Mayo Clinic, we had lots of people who would come from all over because they were told their child would never talk or that they just weren't making progress in therapy. And I can tell you that those children all were able to make great progress in speech when you start focusing on the accuracy of movement. I will say that the Once Upon a Time Foundation did give money to the Mayo Clinic when the benefactor's child was diagnosed there because he was so frustrated that he had to travel all the way to Mayo. And he said to me, I have the resources to do this. What about all the parents who don't? And he wanted to help parents get the same kind of information I was able to give him when they didn't have you know, the access to Mayo or other places where there might be motor speech experts. So they funded video, which is basically, I created a script where using questions that I was often asked by parents, and I just give the answers that I would if I were sitting with a parent. And then there are a number of videos that show children with and without childhood apraxia of speech, different levels of severity of childhood apraxia of speech, and some treatment of childhood apraxia of speech. Find links to those videos on the blog post for this episode at on.asher.org slash podcast. Although still active in the field, Edie is retired now after spending decades working with apraxia of speech. I wanted to know if over her career, there are any patients that stuck with her. Oh my gosh, there sure are. I remember one adult who drove in, this is when I was still in private practice years and years ago. This is a woman that taught me a lot about persistence and resilience. She was in her late 30s, I think, and had a severe stroke. And she had probably one of the most severe proxy of speech I've ever seen. And this was, you know, before I knew very much. I hadn't gone back to get my PhD yet. And I had read Jay's work and was doing better with the apraxia of speech 
patience, but this woman had no speech at all. And she came to me and I did the assessment and I said, you know, I just don't think that I can ethically charge you because I just think it's it's been too long. She was like six years post stroke by the time I saw her. And in those days, you know, we thought after a year, there probably was not a, a lot of room for improvement. But she had the resources and really wanted to come three days a week. And she did for about six months. And I will say that she was able to produce a number of functional phrases that made a difference in her life. Go to lunch. Joe's not here when she answered the phone. Very, very functional things. And I worried about this. You know, was this ethical to see her? But I really worried about it. But in her mind, this made her quality of life so much better. I learned to really listen (laughs) to patients. You know, I often tell people when I'm giving courses, especially with the kids, listen to them, watch them, because they're my teachers. I think I honed my clinical skills by really paying attention to the kids, what they said, how they responded. I think it's a piece of advice I like to pass along. In terms of the kids, there's too many to tell you about. (laughs) They get in your heart, you know. These kids come, they're so frustrated, they can't speak at all. And you just see the light come on when they start to be able to move more accurately. And you see a child who's not really willing to try and, and is somewhat uncooperative just turn into this happy kid who's watching you and really (laughs) wanting to work at this. And when you see that change happen, it's like the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, we're very lucky speech pathologists because we have an opportunity to really impact people's life. I mean, communication is everything, isn't it? And I just feel very, very lucky that I got into a profession that I ended up being so passionate about. Are those the moments that you're most proud of? It's a good question. I don't know if it's I'm most proud of. They're the moments where I feel most fulfilled, I guess. They're the, the moments where I feel like, okay, I've made a difference. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity in life to have that feeling that you've made a difference in someone's life. I'll tell you, there are frustrations too. I mean, and there are some people, you know, more with the adults, I think, that have really severe problems. Or at Mayo, we work with so many people with degenerative disease. And you work over time to help them adapt to their increasing difficulty. And it's a different kind of work where, you know, you don't get to feel that You've helped them that much, even though, you know, you are helping their ability to communicate as they live with this degenerative condition. But sometimes our work is very hard, emotionally as well as cognitively. Did you ever find that there are steps you need to take to center yourself emotionally outside of the workplace? Oh, yeah. I um, You cover the ICU and, and people don't make it. I worked ALS clinics at the University of Vermont, the University of Washington, and then the whole time I was at the Mayo Clinic. And my first big NIH grant was to do longitudinal work with people that had ALS. And I became close to all those people. And of course, you know, they all passed. That was very, (laughs) very hard. And 
So you do learn to take care of yourself. You learn to have empathy, but yet the, I wanted to say the right amount of professional distance. I don't know what right is. It's a little bit different with every patient. But for all those very difficult times, there are so many people that we can help, especially with the kids that have CAS. Most of them just do so well if we can see them frequently enough and use the appropriate treatments to address the nature of their impairment. Edie Strand, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Find links to motor speech-related resources and information on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. The support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Rethinking Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing, and it begins March 22nd. Learn more at on.asha.org slash pedfeeding23. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.